Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad that you can join us. This is episode 74. We're coming to you uh, recording this uh, Saturday, March 9th at 7 p.m. Pacific time. So the eve before Mother's Day. Uh, it is 80 degrees in the Pacific Northwest. It is snowing on the East Coast. Zach, what is it doing by you? Well, wouldn't it make sense if it was like in between? I mean, that's what it is. It's like 50 degrees here. <laughs> yeah, this was by far the nicest day of the year. Uh where we're at, right, Todd? Yeah. Yeah, I went for a run at like 8 o'clock this morning. It was already like 70 degrees. That was pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a, it was a little crazy today. Um, yeah, for sure. Zach, what are you drinking? I am not drinking uh, the uh, drink I've been drinking for the last five podcasts that now I can't remember what it's called. Uh I'm drinking Sierra Nevada Pale Ale because I I made a run to the liquor store this week. Although I went, I didn't go inside. They delivered it to my car, and I was sure to get plenty of these to stock up on because you know we're on episode seventy four. Who knows when this coronavirus may end? It may not be until episode seven hundred and seventy four. So I'm gonna need a lot of these. Uh, you either it's funny you either drink Costco wine. Free State beer or Sierra Nevada beer. I mean, there's really nothing else. That is true. I have not been able to get to Costco, though, because the nearest Costco is about 35 miles away, and they do not do pickup service, and there is no way in hell that I'm going inside a Costco. They require you to wear a mask, though. Well, that's true. That gives me some solace, but, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. They don't do a uh, they don't do a uh, a thirty five mile delivery service from Costco for you. Believe it or not, they do not. <laughs> da- damn that Kirkland brand. <sighs> well, Todd, what do you I, got? I do miss my Costco. I do miss my Costco wine. I, I bet uh, you do. The podcast 12... misses your Costco wine. Yes, I have a twelve pack of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, so we'll we'll see how long that lasts. There you go. There you go. I am drinking the old faithful Hunter Rye 90 proof rye whiskey, Canadian. It's just really good and it goes well with what I was drinking earlier, so very nice. <laughs> Nothing like pre-gaming for the podcast, Todd. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> it's a hot Saturday, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. So, uh so this was I mentioned on the last podcast this was Teacher Appreciation Week this last week and Usually I get a whole bunch of gifts throughout the week for my kids, which I wasn't at school to get that. However, and usually a bunch of restaurants do a lot of giveaways and stuff. Um, However, we did do one thing, and that was the Noble Hop Beer House in Hillsboro. It's like less than a year old. They did, for teachers, $10 growler fill-ups this week. And so we went and took all of our growlers and got them all filled up. Uh, with uh, with some wonderful stuff, and so I, I got to look it up here on their on their website. I am drinking. This is out of Everybody's Brewery in White Salmon, Washington. This is their Velvet Tiger IPA, 
and it just it just sounded cool. So we went with uh, we went with that. They've got some other really cool ones here. I I uh, I think if I go back there, I'm gonna get out of a. Uh, there's out of out of uh, the Breakside Brewery in Portland. They have an I can show you the world Pilsner with in jasmine infused. So, uh, yeah, beautiful. I'm, I may have to do that on a future podcast. I think we need to have a future podcast where we drink each other's drinks. I think I need to drink some ridiculously uh, uh, liquored beverage that Todd drinks. I think Todd needs to drink one of Terry's uh, gimmick beers, and Terry needs to drink one of my Costco wines. I, I, I would not be opposed to that. We, we should be able to assign that instead of assigning a movie. Ooh, <laughs> now we're talking. We may need to wait till after quarantine is up to do that, though, because it might be a little hard to find some of the stuff that we're supposed to drink. Yeah, I don't think I could get a Free State Brewery <laughs> Copperhead Ale anywhere around here right now. No, I would assign you Costco wine. Okay. But I would do it very enviously, you know, because I'd want to drink it. But <laughs> I'll FedEx it to you. There okay, we go. great. There we go. All right, well, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we've been watching. We do have a movie that we're reviewing. It's a retro review, an anniversary review that we'll do in a little bit. But first, we're going to talk about uh, what we've been watching. And um, before we go through individually what we've been watching, um, episodes five and six of The Last Dance came out since the last time we recorded. What would you guys think? I, I loved it. I mean, this is the best thing that's happened during the the quarantine um, some really nice, I love all the cameo appearances on this. I love Jerry Seinfeld's cameo appearance. My, maybe my favorite moment of these last two episodes was when Michael Jordan takes him aside and says, Hey, look at these guys over here. They watch your show after every game. And it's like, there's no freaking way Michael Jordan ever watched Seinfeld. I thought it was painfully obvious in that scene. I, I really liked that. I also loved all the other not, random 90s celebrities like John Cusack, Gary Sinise, Ken Mattingly showed up. Uh, Bette Midler, uh, uh, who else? Chris Rock was there. It was like a 90s who's who of great movie stars that came to all of all of his games. Well, I, I guess that was just the, the uh, 98 All-Star game, but some great cameos throughout. I want to see Carmen Electra again, though. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the 98 All-Star game, I loved how they were able to get um, a little word from Kobe in. Uh, that was mm -hmm. really cool. Um uh, that was nice to see. Uh, I also, I love all the stuff about the Dream Team. Like, the Dream Team is, like, the coolest thing, like, that ever happened. And I love that Isaiah Thomas got left off of it. I mean, that's just, that's just glorious right there. I've seen a lot of that footage, though, before. Uh, I have, too. That footage I've seen. Yeah, I, I, I feel like these last couple episodes, they were supposed to be pretty, like, controversial. But I don't think they really dug that deep into, uh... MJ's uh, gambling and all that stuff, because, I mean, especially leading into, like, when he retires and does Space Jam and all that stuff, and supposedly was suspended for two years because he was gambling on on, on whatever, like, I, I don't know, I don't think they really dug that deep into that, I still feel like it's a little coded over with, like, uh, MJ kind of approving what he wants to approve and not what he want what he what he doesn't I, I don't know. but i they were still really entertaining episodes and I, I i feel like it's also giving like this like uh 
this perspective that MJ actually did have a really good sporting cast and like Paxson like had like multiple major shots in late NBA finals and stuff like that when everyone just assumes MJ just took it over. I, I, I think that's I think that's good that we're actually getting some sort of perspective that he like he wasn't like inhuman. And as soon as Paxson left he got Steve Kerr, so Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the best three point shooter of all time at the time. Right. I love yeah. when Michael when Michael gets on the bus, takes the driver's seat, and saying, "Come on, everybody, I got a tea time to make." And, uh, <laughs> and then he just lays on the horn because people are still talking outside the bus. <laughs> well, it was Scotty. They kept on trying to interview Scotty, and he was uh, laying on the horn, so they couldn't. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, the 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 gambling stuff. It's really interesting how, I mean, it's it's billing itself as like this tell-all but it's still a tell-all according to michael it's michael's tell-all it's not like an actual warts and all tell-all it's the story according to michael aren't you getting a little sick of hearing him talk about it too like he's kind of boring to listen to because after like a couple episodes you're like okay yeah he's one note the whole time he's like i'm super competitive i hold grudges but that's really all it is the entire time. I've not heard anything one original thing he said in the last four episodes. I think the uh, the my my favorite line of the last two episodes was Charles Barkley saying that um, when Jordan took over one of the games in the finals, he's like, "That was the first time I felt like someone was better than me." <laughs> yeah, that's Charles though. Yeah, yeah. I just thought, I thought that was pretty funny. So Do you think he, Michael Jordan watched Uncut Gems and thought he could have done better than Kevin Garnett? In two thousand one thing, he he would he wouldn't have uh, he wouldn't have put the paddle down. That that's that's what I'll say. Yeah, Jordan would I mean, never put that paddle down. I feel like he had the same reaction that he had to the 93 Suns, you know, when he was like, you know, they're, they're good, they practice, but let's be honest, when we get to the court, I'm better than Charles Barkley. That's the way he felt about Kevin Garnett's performance. When push comes to shove, he could have been better in that role. I heard but he knows say... that Ray Allen was better than him in, when they were acting in the 90s, right? Ooh, that's a hot take. I heard, I I heard, know, some, I... I heard somebody how, say how this was week that, hot, that... Was Michael really that great in Space Jam? Come on. <laughs> I heard somebody it's, say this I, week that uh, that um, that Michael greenlit the footage being released as soon as LeBron won his title in Cleveland. Like when when he won that, and everyone's like, "Oh man, LeBron's the man now." He and he, that's when he greenlit. It. I mean, he's competitive even in how he releases this. It it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Krause dies. LeBron wins his wins his title, and it's like, oh, okay. Now we got to make me look like a god. I've, I've, I mean, I've kind of thought that all the time, but I mean, well, whatever. I mean, especially at that time, he he was one. I mean, go, okay, yeah. So I I had a question. What what is the one thing that you could that Michael Jordan did that you could not do twenty five years later that we've seen in this documentary? Because there are many things that just don't translate to twenty twenty. But can you think of? I have one thing, but I, I want to hear what, what both of you guys think. One thing uh, that you could not do today. Smoke a cigar after every game. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's a good one. Or, or the beer. <laughs> well, I mean, that was like celebrating. They, they, no, I mean, that would have been like the full-on champagne thing because they, like, clinched their playoff spot. 
they just quietly sat on the on the medical table and drank a, a Miller Light. The thing that I was going to say that you could not do today is use the phrase Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> like imagine but, LeBron saying that. But that, he did he he did say it though. <laughs> he did say it, but yeah, I, I don't know how that would go over today. <clears throat> well, we'll see. I mean, he still is the highest grossing like uh athlete in the world per year, so I don't think that's going to piss anybody off enough that they're not going to buy Nike. It would piss me enough off enough. But... Did it? <laughs> Did it piss you off? When off I was seven enough? years old, I'm sure it would have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on into what else we've been watching. Uh, Zach, I'm going to you first. What else have you been watching this week? Okay, I got two films to report on this week. Both are sort of about addiction. Maybe that was just the theme this week after watching Michael being addicted to winning and gambling simultaneously. Uh, the first movie I watched is a really little-known film from 1995. This is also, uh, I found it randomly on, on Canopy. Um, it's a movie called Drunks, and it's directed by Peter Cohen, and it's a really low-budget movie. Um, it's very kind of stagey. It's, I think it's based on a play, but it has a loaded cast for a, for a mid-90s indie movie. It's got um, the, the main actor is Richard Lewis in it, but it's got Sam Rockwell, Amanda Plummer, Parker Posey, Diane Weiss, Faye Dunaway, Callista Flockhart, Lisa Gay Hamilton. Um, it's a really interesting movie. It's, it's kind of like, it, it's got a little bit of like a My Dinner with Andre slash Vanya on 42nd Street vibe in that it takes place basically in real time over the course of one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Manhattan one night. And um, I don't know why more movies haven't done this. It basically gives each actor a chance to give a really um, fantastic five-minute monologue over, uh, you know, the character that they're playing and the ordeals that they go through. Um, but what I like about the movie is that it's not really uh, showy. Um, I think a lot of the, the actors are pretty um, actually subdued in their kind of testimonials, and I really uh, like that. Um, it feels like a really authentic AA meeting. Uh, and so um, there's, you know, a flurry of, of, of great uh, of great monologues, great soliloquies. I think the winner goes to Howard E. Rollins Jr., the late great Howard E. Rollins Jr. He, he is phenomenal in his little speech. And then, uh, and, but, you know, Richard Lewis is, is sort of the main character, and he gives his sort of testimonial, which spurs him back into um, relapse, uh, which you see over the course of the night. Really good movie, very low budget, looks like it was shot for about $100, but um, a reminder that, you know, in this kind of like mid-90s era, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Soderbergh, I mean, they bring back the indie movie. This is a movie that never caught on. It has under a 1,000 views on uh, uh, IMDb, but it has a loaded cast, and it's really well done. Um, I, I was pretty thoroughly engrossed by it, and I give it three and a half stars. It was a um, really powerful look at alcoholism, which movies have done a, a lot of times, and a lot of times they do it uh, very over the top and theatrical and this one was very um down to earth and and gritty um have either of you heard of that movie drunks no i have not okay it, it's really good it's also great if you're you know interested in seeing great actors give little scene performances the other movie i watched is is a new movie that just came out it was released um well it was meant it was set to be released at the south by southwest film festival um, but they released it uh, streaming on Amazon, and it's a documentary called TFW No GF, and that stands for That Feeling When No Girlfriend. And it's about um, this kind of online subculture of um, guys in their 20s who uh, basically have no life. They play video games a lot. They uh, have a lot of 
um, sort of misogynistic views. It's kind of like, you know, borderline white nationalism, Trump supporting troll culture. Um, it's sort of a more anthropological look, though. It doesn't really have any narration. It's more just a look at these, you know, five or six uh, young guys that they that they find. Um, and uh, it's it attempts, I think, to be a look into where they develop um, this kind of very fatalistic, nihilistic view of themselves. Um, and they kind of project this false sense of confidence, which, uh, again, becomes trolling, basically. So the movie kind of shows, you know, what their online persona is like, and it counterpoints that to their actual personalities, which are a lot more meek and milquetoast and kind of downer. I don't think it's a great documentary. I was hoping for a kind of insightful look at basically what propels sort of um, hate speech online, Trump culture online, and Reddit threads and things like that. Um, the movie's kind of shoddily made, too. I was kind of disappointed by that. But it did make me think quite a bit about how, um, I don't know, internet culture plays a role in both our personal identities and then how we project ourselves. And there's sort of a split dichotomy there. I think I think the filmmakers were trying to go for that, but it wasn't quite ever stranded together that, that well. Um, so for me, it's like a two and a half star movie. It's interesting if you're interested in internet subcultures like that and, and um, kind of trolling and online message boards. But uh, I wish it have gone a little further all right haven't heard of that one either but uh you said you found that on canopy no that, that one is uh, streaming free on amazon prime ah prime perfect awesome all right todd what about you uh so i started watching another tv show i started watching yellowstone which is the uh i guess oh. as rick dalton would say it's a uh it's just a western uh, it's uh, Taylor Sheridan's uh, created show on the Paramount Network. It's about this guy who's a sixth-generation billionaire rancher in Montana who has to deal with, like, the Indian Reservation and the uh, the uh, Yellowstone National Park and, like, people trying to build on his land. Like, Sheridan has this, like, really good knack for making these old Western value kind of... Uh, screenplays and teleplays but making it in modern times because it is completely modern and but it also feels like an old school western it's a really cool show so far i'm about five episodes in it's got kevin costner in the lead role kelly riley is in it uh danny houston uh cole hauser it's a good show and i i'm curious to see where it goes and i know the third season starts sometime next month so i'm gonna try to catch up in the first two seasons uh before then because they're all on peacock right now uh, but yeah, I, I I recommend it if you like westerns at all, which I I'm becoming more and more of a fan of westerns. Uh, I rec I recommend the show a lot. Very nice, very nice. I've not watched any of that. So you, you said it's good, despite Kevin Costner. Yeah, well, Costner's good in westerns. <laughs> I, I I have no idea why I have this hatred of Kevin Costner. Maybe maybe I don't because. Either. I, I think Mr. Brooks, like Mr. Brooks is one of the worst movies ever from, from what was it, like 2006, 2007, and I think that just soured me to Kevin Costner, like, forever. So that overtakes your opinion of, like, all his baseball movies that are awesome? I mean, come on, Terry. Yeah, it kind of does. Kinda you should does. go on, on YouTube and watch his eulogy at Whitney Houston's funeral. Then you will rethink him, because he gave a phenomenal eulogy. Okay. I'll have to look, Sorry, have that's to look my that. my random YouTube plug for yep. this episode. Yeah, there's got to <laughs> yeah, be at yeah. least one. <laughs> did 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 he sing the song from the bodyguard for her? That that would have been that would have been. No, but 
there's a, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, it's sad. It's, it's, it, it, he talks about, he opens it talking. He's, he opens it with a great line. He says, you know, you would think Whitney Houston and I would not have a lot in common, but actually we do. And then he goes into this list of all the things they have in common. And it's, it, it's, it's really good. It's, it's worth checking out. You may cry. All right. Uh, let's see here. What did I watch? I'm continuing my way through uh, Breaking Bad. I'm halfway through season four. Uh, this yeah. afternoon, yeah, this afternoon, I just watched uh, an episode where um, where uh, Walt kind of goes off the rails on Skyler and gives the infamous "I'm the one who knocks" line. Um, and uh, you also have have uh, have Jesse kind of becoming like an understudy to Mike, which is kind of an interesting development. Um, and, and get, finding a way to give a meth head a shovel and to distract him. That was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, that's, <laughs> yes, that's, that's, a, that's a great scene. That's a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> I know meth heads. <laughs> you may know this PI stuff. Uh, that, that was a great scene. Uh, anyways, so, but the movie I'm going to talk about is my anniversary watch for this week. And so for this week, for my anniversary watch, I watched The Way Back. No, not the Ben Affleck basketball movie, The Way Back. No, not the 2013 Steve Carell movie, The Way Way Back. No, this is the Peter Weir 2010 movie, The Way Back. Um, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, Jim Sturgis, Saoirse Ronan, Ed Harris, um, the forgotten Skarsgård brother Gustav is in this. Um, That's not real. You're making that up. <laughs> no, <laughs> Gustav Skarsgård. He, he was in this, and he was in uh, he was in the TV show Vikings. That's like all he's ever done. Oh, he's in five he would episodes be in a show of Westworld. Vikings. Yeah, um, he was in Us. Oh no, that was 2013. Us. Who knows what that is? Anyways, um, so yeah, Gustav Skarsgård's in it, and uh, and some other people. Mark Strong is in it. Who I put a picture of this on Twitter. Mark Strong looks a lot like Robert De Niro in this for some reason. I have no idea why. Like like uh, Travis Bickle era Robert De Niro. Um, it, Interesting. You cover, yeah, he he's got like he's got like a fake like Jewish nose, and then he's got a a, a Russian like a Russian hat on because they're in the middle of Russia. And, like, covering up the fact that he's bald and giving him this different nose totally made him look like De Niro. It, it was bizarre. Um, but I really, really like this movie. It's a story, true story, based on a true story, of this group of people who uh, escape a Siberian gulag during World War II and walk 4,000 miles to the nearest, uh, nearest non-communist place, which is India. Um... It's 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 a pretty outstanding movie. I give it three and a half stars. Um, I watched it because it got a nomination for makeup, which was the only nomination it got. I'm I'm shocked it really didn't catch on much. I remember that year uh, it was thought to potentially be an award, like a heavy awards contender, but it really just kind of fell off, and I don't really know why. Because it it's a really entertaining watch of of uh, survival and struggle. What the hell happened to Jim Sturgis, man? I mean, he was going to be like a thing. And then he just kind of fell off the face of the earth. But, um, but yeah, everyone's really good in it. Um, yeah, ten years ago it came out. Uh, I, I really liked it. Colin Farrell with a Russian accent was kind of weird. But other than that... <laughs> other than that, it, it, was, it was good. Yeah, three and a half stars. 
Have any, either of you guys seen this one? Yeah, I watched it in the theater. I remember it wasn't in theaters for very long, but uh, Peter Weir does, obviously doesn't make very many movies anymore. And I thought, was that his last movie? I think it was. Mm. But I, I, I remember, I remember kind of liking it. I mean, I was, I'm a big Colin Farrell fan, especially at that time. So it was his last gave, movie. He hasn't made yeah, a movie think, since. Yeah, I mean, I, I, rem- I remember being happy it got some, some nomination, but yeah, I do remember it being a, a awards contender before that. Yeah, and I don't, I don't understand why. And and makeup, I mean, there is, it's very subtle makeup, but makeup being that's one nomination is kind of bizarre. It should, it could have contended for cinematography, um, some maybe some direction. Peter Weir might sneak in there. I mean, he snuck in in almost everything else. I mean. Every, everything he made up to that point, I mean, before that, it was Master and Commander, which was a Best Picture nominee. Truman Show got some love. Uh, he had Dead Poet Society, which was a Best Picture nominee. So I don't know why this one didn't catch on, but it's a really good movie. Streaming on Amazon Prime, if any of you guys want to watch it. Cool. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie Reviews. All right, well, let's move into our, our featured review that we all watched this week. And uh, like I said, this was a uh, this is a retro review, an anniversary review. Um, and uh, this is what we like to call a come-to-the-stable movie for us. This uh, A random movie that had, that had some notoriety of some sort. This was a movie that um, had, had an Oscar nomination. Uh, in 1970, this movie is 50 years old this year, and it is simply just called Joe. <laughs> hey, Joe, don't it make you want to go to war once more? Hey, Joe, why the devil did we go to war? Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like you to meet Joe. This is what the American press say. The movie Joe must surely rank in impact with Bonnie and Clyde. Time magazine. Money don't mean nothing to them. Motorcycles, marijuana. You got love, you don't need this stuff. Uh, how did he fall in love? A hippie pimp. Lone Ranger. Cowboys and Indians. Hop along Cassidy. What he like is to have a little on the side once in a while. I'll drink to that. He looks like a truck driver. and groove. Joe, do me a favor. Give us all a break. Four stars, devastatingly funny. New York Daily News. Uh, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And Todd, I'm going to you first. Tell us all about Joe. All right, so I actually found this movie. I had never heard of it, but I had seen the Nicolas Cage Joe. I knew it had nothing to do with it. But uh, the fact that this was directed by an Oscar-winning director, I was like, we should do this as our 50th anniversary movie because we hadn't done a 50th anniversary yet. And uh, I guess the, the most notable actor actor actress in it is Susan Sarandon. She plays this girl named Melissa, who's a young girl who's dating a drug dealer, and she has, like, a near overdose. Her father is played by Dennis Patrick. His name's Bill Compton, and he's not the vampire in True Blood. He is this, like, rich businessman who... Uh, she confronts, he confronts the, the drug dealer and accidentally kills him, and in the, probably the most bizarrely shot death scene I've ever seen, I don't even really know why they did it like that, uh, but he tries to cover it up, and he ends up at this bar where he meets a guy named Joe Curran, played by 
Peter Boyle, who's a military veteran who hates hippies, black people, basically kind of anyone who isn't like him. And he, uh, and Bill tells him that, you know, he killed one of them and it almost like makes Joe jealous or something. So Melissa runs away and they kind of go after him and that sort of, uh, forms the, the, the premise for most of this movie. It's directed by John G. Alvidson who directed Rocky, and I have no idea how he went from this, like, vulgar movie to Rocky, but uh, it's an uh, interesting transition. Susan Sarandon, I think, is kind of awful in the movie. She only is really there to kind of get naked, but I guess she's good at that in that sense. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Patrick uh, looks... I, I honestly thought it was, like, the the main guy in Caddyshack for the entire movie. I have no oh, idea how it was that yes. guy. Oh, yes! <laughs> Uh, but he's kind of he's kind of bad too. He's really bland. Uh, Peter Boyle is kind of awesome though. I, I I think he's like really believable in this role, even though it probably should have been somebody who is probably like twenty years older than he is. I actually read that he got the role in uh, the French Connection because of his role in this movie, but he turned it down because he didn't want to make another violent movie. But then he tried to write a sequel to this movie that never got made. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, the movie, the Oscar-nominated screenplay, was written by Norman Wexler, who uh, also wrote Serpico and Saturday Night Fever. He obviously a really talented writer in the 70s. Uh, it's kind of a weird screenplay nomination, because I feel like the premise is really simple, and I, I think a lot of Peter Boyle's stuff had to have been ad-libbed, and that's the only thing that really punches it up as like a real original screenplay. Uh, but the movie did sort of set the stage for a lot of 70s movies like Rolling Thunder and obviously Taxi Driver, but uh, those are way better movies. I don't think this really ages all that well, because I, I don't think, I don't really think it has a real uh, tone that it wants to set. Like, there's a lot of scenes where they're, like, doing drugs and, like, banging chicks that it's all cool, but it doesn't really, uh, really amount to much when the rest of the movie is, you know these, like, kind of, like, really, like, serious conversations or, like, like, outbursts of violence. Uh, but the final scenes sort of work, I think. I'm, I'm, but especially the final, uh, the couple shots, but, I mean, the last few scenes I thought were just sort of random. I don't, I have no idea why the movie is called Joe, because, uh, that character is not the main character or the focus of the movie, but he is the best part of the movie. It's, it's kind of weird that the movie was a, like a box office smash. Like, it, it made, like, uh, what, I saw $26 million on a $100,000 budget. Which, I mean, it probably was pretty radical at the time. And it did, it did sort of usher the 70s uh, era of film. But I don't think it's really all that good. I give it two stars. I... I, I understand the movie because of the controversy, but I, I, I can't actually sign off on it being a good movie. All right. I, I'm going to take it a step further. This movie was laughably bad. The, this was... I, I don't even understand what what was going on. First off, like you said, it has no business being called Joe. That That is the stupidest title. And let's also say the stupidest opening montage I've ever seen in a movie where you just have the three letters J-O-E across the screen in red, white, and blue, and then you have some random pop song playing in the background while you see through the letters this 
the scene going on, I, I felt like I was watching an 80s movie. Like, I felt like I was watching the opening to The Outsiders, where, where you hear Stevie Wonder singing. It, it made no sense. Um, then you go to the first scene where you've got, uh, where you've got Susan Sarandon and her boyfriend, drug dealer, and... Um, First off, I, I the first thing I noticed about Susan Sarandon is um, she must have definitely grown into her looks a little bit. She's a little bug-eyed in this and just looks just like, I don't know, she looks off. Um, and then I, I felt like I was watching like some low-budget version of Breaking Bad for a second there as, he, as, the, as they're all shooting up and taking drugs and everything. Which made me think what this movie really is about is this is a movie made that uh that would be like um a movie if like jesse pinkman's dad was the main character like that that's who that's that's what this movie is um and that and that's uh melissa's dad that that's that's what i would i would see from this you're right i would say peter boyle is the only thing that gives this gives this movie a spark but i don't know if it's necessarily a good spark um he's just because it's just it's just something different that punches you in the face whenever he's on screen but i mean it how is this any different than his character in taxi driver i, th I think he kind of has the same the same note like joe grows up to become wizard in taxi driver that that's kind of what i see um it the the final scenes you said they kind of work i think they are completely predictable like i saw that coming a mile away like it tries to give one of those like like twists uh twist endings to just and and it it's like well uh, obviously this is how it has to end because it's just that climactic scene i'm giving it one star this movie is bad it's just bad and it's weird and bad and yeah i i it couldn't hold my attention at all all right zach how about you all right todd i want to thank you for picking this movie because <laughs> this was I think this 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 movie's a home run. I'm giving it three and a half stars, and I'll tell you why in a second. But but I think for, I just want to preface this by saying we need to do more old movies, okay? Because old movies are fantastic to review. Because I was listening to a really good podcast from Tarantino where he says if you just review current movies, you know, it, you come off as really mean spirited. But if you review old movies, it's like the director's dead or old old enough to not care what you say. So more old movies, I say. You both miss, especially you, Terry. You both miss the point of this movie completely. Okay? Yes, it is corny. Yes, it has the '70s aesthetic all over it. But if you don't like the '70s aesthetic, then don't watch a '70s movie. Okay? That stuff, you're right. That has not aged well, okay? There's stuff in, in Taxi Driver that didn't age well either, okay? I will also give you that the first 30 minutes of this movie are, are sort of pointless. Nothing really important happens. I mean, it's, it, it gives a pretext to the story. But once the Joe character meets the father character, the Bill character, once they meet in that, in that bar, this movie becomes really fascinating. And I think it is a really, really, I think, sophisticated and complex view about counterculture in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, you gotta, you gotta contextualize where this movie's coming from, okay? This movie's coming from the era of Easy Rider and Woodstock and Bonnie and Clyde and this idea that, you know, we gotta, we gotta pander to youth audiences. We gotta make these movies, uh, very, very youth oriented and celebrate the psychedelic movement. This is a movie that's totally coming from a different direction, okay? And I 
I think it is also a movie very much about the Nixon era. And Richard Nixon is in this movie. There's a nice cutout of him and saying, would you buy a used car for me? And I, I really like that moment. I think that movie kind of sums up the movie because if you think about Nixon, okay, Nixon appealed to white, older, middle-class people and he also appealed to racist rednecks. He had the silent majority and he had the Southern strategy. And that is what this movie is about. This movie is a metaphor for Nixon's success and his ultimate reelection in 1972. And therefore it is also, I think, completely a relevant movie today because it is also about how the Republican Party sold out to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump in this movie is, of course, Joe. You watch Joe spout off these ridiculous, you know, claims, right? That 42% of liberals are gay and he you know uses whatever language he wants to use without any fear of retribution or offending anyone right and then we get this bit this this guy who's you know a mild-mannered milk toast he's privileged he's white and it isn't that it's at first that he thinks that you know maybe he can fix joe or maybe it's it's good to have joe it's good to be an outlet for someone like joe but then he starts investing in joe's ideas and that kind of that kind of indoctrination is really fascinating in this movie i think this movie takes a really kind of interesting tone and then I couldn't stop thinking about this movie. I think there's a third reading of this movie too, which is I think this movie is also about a metaphor for Hollywood in the 70s and the idea that instead of, again, pandering to youth with movies like, you know, Easy Rider and Taking Off and Carnal Knowledge, this movie wants to be something different. And this movie villainizes both the counterculture, but it also comes from a place that doesn't indulge too much in that kind of aesthetic, um, except for the one shot that Todd is talking about where the guy dies and that's very kind of psychedelic. But that's the only time the movie kind of deviates from this. The aesthetic of this movie is very straightforward and it's kind of a relief from the kind of Easy Rider aesthetic that uh, kind of, I think, undermines movies and makes them look really dated. Like, if you watch Midnight Cowboy today, the Andy Warhol orgy scenes look really bad in that movie, just really outdated. But this movie, I think, holds up really well. You need to watch this movie from a 1970 perspective, not a 2020 perspective. Three and a half stars, totally worthy of its Oscar nomination. I really dug this movie. Wow. Wow. I, I knew you were either going to love it or hate it. I, I, and I was surprised you fell on that side of it. Maybe it, maybe my problem was I had watched like two hours of Breaking Bad, right? Like a couple hours before I watched Joe, maybe that just kind of, and then the opening scene just kind of left me. This is a low budget Breaking Bad. I don't know. Yeah. It's I, hard to, yeah. it's hard to see like from the perspective of then when you see the movies that, uh, it spawned after that uh, to try to give it credit when it's. I feel like it is a lesser version of those, but I mean, I mean, you you make compelling arguments, I guess. I see what you're I saying I, for sure. Yeah, I guess I would say. I mean, I to some extent I agree with you, Terry. Like, there's definitely some rough patches in this movie, and the acting is over the top, and the music is pretty terrible. But like, you got to look beyond that. I think this movie is really trying to say something, and that I think is a difference between the '60s and '70s and today. Whereas, you know, a movie that become would become a box office success today would just kind of be vapid, and it might have special effects and, and big actors. This movie, I feel like, resonated with the audience in the 1970s because it was about an idea, and a, an idea that 
was kind of perverse and disturbing, and it didn't want to make audiences feel comfortable. And to me, that shows, I think, audacity and imagination on the part of the filmmakers. I think this is also, I got to clarify too, I think this is clearly a left-wing movie. I mean, this is a movie that is clearly talking about how the right-wing society of America at one point was fractured, and that may have led to the success of Kennedy and Johnson in the 1960s. But the unification of those wings of the party, of the extreme racists, but and also the upper middle class uh, white people whose racism is kind of you know, deeply embedded in them, but they don't want to externalize it, I think is really compelling. And it, it again, forecasts both Nixon's reelection and it forecasts Trump today. I think this is a, a, a movie that people should be watching today. And I'm, I'm disappointed that it's been forgotten, but hopefully, I don't know, it, sh it should be resurrected. And Peter Boyle is great in this movie. He is. He does look a little young, though. I, I would agree with that. But yeah, he's still really he good. should. He should have been like a fifty-year-old at least. But I think he was like thirty-five or so. When yeah, he was shot. my age in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And he was playing a World War II vet, talking about fighting on Okinawa. <laughs> See, I just I, I've seen a lot of movies from this era, and like Midnight Cowboy is the first one that comes to mind. They they look at the counterculture, and the filmmaker indulges in this kind of counterculture type filmmaking and that just looks bad and I like that this movie is just a little bit more straightforward and is more interested in the intellectual ideas it has rather than the stylistic excess honestly I mean you're making great points honestly it did not do enough to make me care enough to analyze it that closely that, that's where well, I'm at with it. I also wrote my master's thesis on this era in filmmaking. So I, I like movies that come from this era. I think they're fascinating. It is very possible that this movie is more interesting to think about and talk about than to actually watch. But I was very, very uh, entertained by it and, and provoked, thought provoked. Hearing you talk about it, yeah, I would agree. It's much more interesting to talk about and analyze than it is to actually watch. Uh, to add to our conversation, our friend Adam Daly, who, our our other almost sideways contributor, sent me a uh, a a little uh, review of his from the movie that uh, that I I want to share with you now. Uh, so he says, after hearing the sweet pipes of Jerry Butler for two minutes and thirty seven seconds during the opening titles, we finally get to the start of the film. And right into some unwanted uh, nips from Patrick McDermott. Joke aside, I know we aren't supposed to like Frank, but it made it so easy when McDermott couldn't act himself out of a toilet. Uh, the poster for this movie looks like a presidential candidate pin. Uh, you can't help but draw comparisons between Joe Curran's worldview to those of many people who have been in the news these last four years. So that's going to something Zach said already. Uh, the film was interesting to say the least, and I guess it does exist. Uh, Joe by far is a toxic character that really just needs an excuse to dive into his hate. The ending is the best part of the film, though. I do feel it's pretty convenient that uh, Bill's daughter somehow knew these random people. I give this film a two-star. Weird takeaways. Why would you buy a year's supply of peanut butter? It's a great question. Um, Peter Boyle destroying the Ritz bo cracker box was odd. <laughs> Um, why would a random drug dealer get front page press and get reported on the local news? Um, Richard Nixon would totally be a used car salesman. Um, oh, this is a great one. Did the word orgy just get invented in the 70s and we've been pr uh, pronouncing it wrong this whole time? Joe kept saying orgy. I was thinking something similar. Um, and uh, his quote of the movie is, uh, you just beat the world speed record. <laughs> if you watch the movie, you know what context 
that line comes yes, from. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's a lot funnier than it sounds. It is. Um, yeah, so uh, this movie, it, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. You can catch it there. Uh, obviously, we have very mixed opinions on it. I do see what, what Zach's saying, but like I said, it didn't do enough to make me care enough to actually uh, analyze it that closely. So I'm giving it one star. Todd and Adam are giving it two stars. Zach is giving it three and a half stars. Dude, Zach, it sounds like you could have, like, written your master's thesis on this movie. Yeah, I probably should have. You know, the difference is, I mean, you know, Adam wants to make those funny points, and that's fine. You know, if you came at this movie from a snarky 2020, you know, it, it, the luxury of hindsight perspective, then yes, you can rip apart this movie, okay? But... Don't. I mean, the, the, this filmmaker, John G. Albertson and, and the screenwriter, they, they, I thought they were trying to take this material really seriously. And I think if you place yourself in the, in the thought process of a 1970 viewer, you can see why this movie maybe got under some people's skin. Sound like you were quoting a, a Grindhouse trailer there. If you felt like ripping this yeah. movie, don't. <laughs> Exactly. And just for the record, Todd, you might be thinking this, I'm not stealing this from Ebert's review. Ebert never reviewed this movie, so I don't know what he thought of it, but I would think that Ebert I was actually trying to look that up. I was thinking that he probably had this in his top ten in 1970, but I couldn't find it. No, he definitely did not, but I've never found a review. I've never heard an allusion to it, so it's strange that this movie has gotten forgotten so so much, but we're going to bring it back. One other actor that I want to mention that was in this movie is... uh, is the woman who played uh, the the great grandma in Knives Out was Peter Boyle's wife. In oh this yeah, movie. I noticed oh, that wow. too. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. Her name That's is Kay Callen. She was in Knives Out. She was in three episodes of Veep. She just kind of done a bunch of random stuff. But yeah, I thought that that I was like, oh yeah, that movie like just came out. But yeah, that was Joe's wife. I just okay. couldn't get over the fact that the main character's name was Bill Compton. I was like, Vampire Bill, really? But, I think you're yeah. the only one here that's seen True Blood, Todd. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm surprised my wife didn't catch that, though. She's a huge True Blood fan. All right, well, let's move on from Joe. Um, I didn't think we were. I, I didn't think we were going to take it down that road, but I'm glad we did. All right, let's get into our uh, our spotlight segment here. Spotlight. And uh, our last few spotlight segments, we've been doing Mount Rushmore's of uh, of different categories at the Oscars over the last decade. Uh, we started with supporting actor and supporting actress. Then we did lead actor, lead actress. Today we're doing original screenplay and adapted screenplay. So we are looking at the ten winners of those two categories from the 2010s, and we're going to build two Mount Rushmore's: one of original screenplay and one of adapted screenplay. We each will put forth one, and then we'll uh, debate what should be the fourth one up there. I'm going to go first on this one. We're starting with original screenplay. Um, this is a really interesting list, so just so everybody knows what films we're talking about. In 2019, the winner was Parasite. 2018, Green Book. 2017, Get Out. 2016, Manchester by the Sea. Uh, 2015, Spotlight. 2014, Birdman. 2013, uh, Her, 2012, Django Unchained, 2011, Midnight in Paris, and 2010, The King's Speech. Uh, I'm going first. I think I'm the only one that hasn't gone first on this yet. Uh, so I'm going first, and I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit, and that's Parasite. Um, it, it, I mean, 
we we've talked we've talked so much about Parasite over the last like three or four months on this podcast in terms of it winning Best Picture, in terms of it winning director and screenplay, being a foreign film, being the first South Korean film to win foreign film, it was in our top five of the decade as an entire website. Uh, it it by far is the best screenplay of any of these winners. Um, which is quite an eclectic group of winners, too. So, yeah, I'm going Parasite. I, I Yes, I'm taking the easy one. So, uh, next, we're going to go to Zach. What are you taking? Okay, well, there's two that really occur to me. I'm going to go with my gut instinct, um, and we'll see if the other one comes up again, and that is uh, Get Out, the 2017 winner by Jordan Peele, his first film. Um, this screenplay was uh, spectacular. I mean, to it's an original screenplay, but it obviously is channeling um, a, a very strong uh, history of genre films, but putting it in a political context. Um, but a movie that I don't know if you'd necessarily even call it political. I mean, it's definitely rooted in, in genre. It has its politics, but it's also a very funny film, too. Um, it has some great uh, one-liners, but it also allows the actors to have a lot of space to breathe and give their own kind of personalities to the roles. Um, when people saw this movie, I don't think anyone knew what they were expecting. I mean, remember when this movie came out, you know, it's, a, it's this little Bloomhouse movie, and, you know, it's going to be cheapo ex exploitation type movie. And then... People saw it, and it became a cultural phenomenon in the era of Trump, and rightly so. And this is a totally deserving winner in 2017, which was a pretty loaded year for, for uh, Best Original Screenplay. Um, it's a movie that will definitely hold up 20, 30, 50 years from now. So that's my low-hanging fruit. I mean, for a February to re release, to have the staying power to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, get win screenplay, yeah, that's... That's impressive because of how groundbreaking it was. So, great pick. Todd, where are you going? Well, at the same time, it sounds like you're uh, talking about Crash, but, you know. Uh, but, oh, uh, anyway. low blow. <laughs> but that is Crash was an unintentional comedy, not a deliberate comedy like Get Out. <laughs> well, anyway, okay, so your guys' word, those are my number four and five in this list. The, the number one, the easy number one is Her... Uh, written and directed by Spike Jones, and I think it's the most Spike Jones movie since being John Malkovich. It's it's a movie about you know this guy who falls in love with his operating system. It, it's it was billed as like this movie about like a future of society, but it almost looks like a movie that was made in the future about the current times. It's a really interesting screenplay, a really almost pitch perfect screenplay with a perfect cast, and I I love it. I, I think it's I mean, I mean, it's right there with the top of the movies from 2013, and yeah, Spike Jones is one of our our national treasures in in filmmaking. I I just wish he made more movies, and I'm I'm shocked that Terry didn't say Midnight in Paris. <laughs> well, you know, we we have to talk about another one here soon. So, uh... all right, so we've got we've got Parasite, we've got Get Out, we've got Her. We need a fourth. Um... Where are we going? Django well, we Unchained, we... probably. <laughs> right? Django's not bad. I was going to say, we know a few places we're not going, like Green Book or Birdman. Yeah, those... Or King's Speech. Those yeah. were someone... Oh, and Spotlight. Speech, those are, those are the Those are the bottom four, for sure. Spotlight's Spotlight not that bad. Spotlight was my number two. 
I'm I'm a big fan of that film. I thought the screenplay was very well deserved that year. The screenplay but, was average. The movie is pretty good. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could that could have been written by anybody though. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a screenplay that is iconoclastic or anything. It doesn't really push any boundaries. So I I, I kind of hear what you're saying. What I would about, I would be okay. I would be okay with Django. What about <laughs> Midnight in Paris? I do like I, that. That's my number six. I know I was I was probably the biggest fan of anybody on the podcast of that movie, but what what about you, Zach? I mean, I'm I'm gonna try to, my best to put politics aside. I thought that was an okay movie. Uh, I was not blown away by the screenplay. I feel like Woody Allen's done that sort of thing before, and um, it was kind of a weak uh, year. I mean, the artist was also nominated in that category. I mean. Silent film nominated for screenplay. And it, and it also beat Margin Call and A Separation, which are two films on, I think, my top 11 of the decade. So it, it's a sort of a personal vendetta that this film somehow... Somehow the Oscar voters thought this was a better screenplay than either of those films, which is just uh, horrendously vulgar. Okay. I, I need to revisit li- that one. It's been a long time. I like Django Unchained. I think that's a good choice. I, I think kind of uh, like Get Out, it's a movie that channels earlier movies, earlier genres, but does its own thing and uh, has a lot of good dialogue, a lot of juicy scenes for its actors, but a really ni- nice, uh, tight, uh, cohere- cohesive narrative. Tighter than a nun's ass, I believe, was what one reviewer said about it. I, I, I like that, yeah. We could go, Django. And it's interesting how I think you had... You had uh, Inglorious Bastards right before this, which was just, it was Tarantino just like raw. And Django was a little more refined, and then I think slowly but surely he just refined it a little more, this narrative of playing with history a little bit. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really was his most subtle and subdued version of it. But uh, yeah, I'm good with Django. How about you, Todd? Well, you're the yeah. one who said it. Wait. All right, let's do it. All right, Parasite, Get Out, Her, and Django. Uh, Adam gave us his uh, original screenplay lineup, and hey, guess what? Parasite, Get Out, Her, and Django is his uh, is Adam's uh, Mount Rushmore of original screenplays. So, oh, he uh, didn't have Manchester on there. That was he like did one not of his have Manchester. <laughs> All uh, right. All right. Okay. Moving on to Adapted. So, here are the ten movies we're going to be talking about. We're talking about Jojo Rabbit, Black Klansman, Call Me By Your Name, Moonlight, The Big Short, The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, Argo, The Descendants, and The Social Network. I think this list is kind of all over the place. There is a lot of, like, forgotten screenplays on here. And um, some wins that may, may not have aged that well that you're like, man, how did that win over this? Um, but I think the one that's going to stand, oh man, I'm stuck between two. I Just the one... take the low hanging fruit. Yeah. You know what it is. The one, the one that, Get that's going to stand the test of time the most is 12 Years a Slave. That's, that's the one that... Oh, not the one I was expecting you to pick. Wow. Okay, never mind. That's my number I'm, eight. <laughs> I'm going 12 Years a Slave. That move, I mean, it may, the screenplay may not be what the, the most impressive part of it, but, uh... I, I really liked I really liked Twelve Years a Slave, and, and it's it's getting, like I we've said before like this is another one we talked about a lot. I think Twelve Years a Slave is going to go down as like another Schindler's List, um for for the Civil War and the uh, slavery era. So I'm going Twelve Years a Slave. I'd fight Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
Zach, what are you going with? Well, because of Todd's uh, crash comment, I'm going to let him deal with his pick. I'm not going to say it, even though it probably would be my pick, but he can he can, uh, he can can talk about it more. Um, I think I would have to go... Uh, oh, boy. I mean, three really stick out. It would, it would have to be between, like, Argo, Moonlight, and Call Me By Your Name. Um, not, not your former professor's Oscar win or whatever. Yeah, yes, my professor, yeah, shout out to Kevin Wilmot. I mean, that certainly was the best, like, moment in the adapted screenplay part of the ceremony this decade. Um, uh, but uh, sadly, would not make my top three. I think I'm just going to go with my gut and go with Call Me By Your Name, which I think was my number two film of 2017. Uh, and uh, James Ivory, distinguished gentleman, and I believe it came up on this show where he was from. I think both of you thought he was from Britain. And he says, I've seen him say in interviews, everyone thinks he's from Britain. But he's actually from Oregon. He's from the United States. I don't know why people, he doesn't know why people think he's from Britain. Anyway, um, he's like 90 years old, oldest ever Oscar winner. And the screenplay for Call Me By Your Name, really good screenplay. Um, again, I guess not necessarily earth shattering, but uh, just, you know, really compelling storytelling. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was cool to see the guy win. I think that movie, I, I'm not the hugest fan of that one. Um, I think it was just overhyped for me. I heard, I watched it long after it was, it had won, and it was one that everyone had said how great it was. So when I finally watched it, I was like, why do people love this? I didn't, it, it, it wasn't the masterpiece that I heard so many people say it was. So I'm not the hugest fan of Call Me By Your Name, but I, I can respect the pick. Well, you also didn't like you. You didn't like Joe either, Terry. So your opinions are questionable. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> All right, Todd. Let's hear about uh, the 2010 winner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Aaron Sorkin's The Social Network. It is obviously the best movie of the 2010s, and it's not close. It is the Citizen Kane of our generation. It is a <laughs> a, a million understatement. Words. <laughs> a million words a minute, you know, Aaron Sorkin dialogue, and only that cast could put it together. It is, uh, it's basically a perfect movie, a top twenty movie of all time. And obvious, I don't know how <laughs> you, you couldn't have it as your number one, but you know, it is what it is. But I'm putting it on there just so it gets on there, so I don't have to argue for it. <laughs> the Citizen Kane of our generation. Wow, I think I think I gr I actually agree with Todd. I think it is clearly the best adapted screenplay of any of these films. I just wanted you to talk about it because you like it more than I do. But I c c totally concur with you. I, mean, I knew it was going to be talked Thanks. about. So yeah. All right. Well, what's going to be our fourth one? I mean, it there there's uh I I don't think we're going to pick the Big Short or the Imitation Game. Yeah, Jojo Rabbit, The Imitation Game, those are like the, the bottoms. I, I would not sign off on either of those. Oh, see, that, then I should have picked Jojo Rabbit. That was the other one I was debating between. We could go with uh, Alex and Jim. Yeah? They've been in this category before. Man, that but... was that was a forgotten movie, though. That was not, Al that was Nat Faxon and Jim Rash and Alexander Payne. Oh, not Jim Taylor. Sorry, I I confused the Jims. Yeah, the, we got the the guy from Community winning an Oscar for writing. How about Argo? Yeah, I mean Argo is my number two. I, I mean it's a 
perfect screenplay. So it, it's it's a it's an amazing screenplay, amazing story. It's a challenging story to tell in a very complex sort of um, convoluted uh, situation scenario, and it does it in a really clear way. So I think that's a good pick. Let's do it. All right. So we got Twelve Years a Slave, Call Me by Your Name, The Social Network, and Argo. Wow, I did not see. I don't know. I don't know what I was. Ex- I really didn't have any expectations of what that was going to be. All I'm right. not even sure the guy who wrote Imitation Game has written another movie. I'm trying to look it up. I don't. <laughs> Graham Moore. Well, while he's looking that up, Adam's adapted screenplay, uh, Mount Rushmore, has got a couple overlaps, but not only only a couple. So he's got Call Me by Your Name, The Social Network. The Big Short and The Descendants. That's not bad. Yeah, see, like The Big Short is so, it, it sort of tries to do what Argo does. It's just not as as well. It also tries to string together a really sort of convoluted canvas that's all over the place, but it just isn't as coherent and as um, frankly entertaining as Argo is. Yeah. All right. So there he we has go, not though. written another movie, by the way. It's his only movie. Nice. All right. Well, there's our uh, there's our Mount Rushmores of screenplays. Uh, let us know what you think. You can find us almostsideways.com. You can find us on Twitter. Yell at us there. You can find us on Facebook. Okay. Power rankings time. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. All right, the last power rankings we did, I won our game, so I got to pick the topic, and we're doing another all-decade topic, and I decided to go with something a little different from what we've been doing, um, and so what we're counting down here uh, for the all our all-decade list is we are looking at the best blockbusters of the 2010s. Uh, the way I defined a blockbuster is if it made over $100 million at the box office. Um, I did the math... And there, this happened, now there was some overlap here because I counted it by year, but this happened 298 times in a year that a film made over $100 million. Now, in like some year? of those, yeah, well, yeah. So like like a film that was like released in December may have made $100 million oh, okay. I see what you mean. one year and then made $100 million in January the next year. But, uh, but yeah, 298 times a film made... Uh, made over made over a hundred million dollars at the box office so that's what we're looking at is blockbusters of the 2010s um and i mean you guys could have interpreted it as many different ways as you wanted to so uh zach i'm going to you first what is your number five wait you also couldn't have it on your top 25 of the decade oh right 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 we did make that stipulation so we were talking about different films and we've been talking about this entire time uh, it could not have been in your top 25 of the decade. Okay. Uh, this was a stupid power rankings, Terry. I just, there's just no other way of saying it. Thank I, you. I, I, I knew I was going to get that reaction from you. <laughs> I mean, are we talking about domestically or are we talking about internationally? Domestic. Are we talking domestic. About, 
okay, well, it, okay, so are we talking about, like, movies that made a crap ton of money did, that we liked? Or, like, what are we supposed to say about them? That it's good that they made this much money? Are, we're only limiting this to theatrical movies. It's like, what, okay, it, it's, it, it, this was a strange, very difficult, very perverse list for me. Um, by the way, that the, it could, could not be on my top 25 list, need not apply to me. I didn't have any movies on my top 25 <laughs> list. Probably that made, you know, $14. So that, that was not a very hard stipulation for me to meet. I don't understand this list. I, I mean, it, it was hard for me to find the box office data on these movies. Why is 100 million a threshold? I don't know. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to, what I tried to do with this list is obviously I tried to not do any sequels or franchises because that's bullshit. I hate that. And number two, I tried to list movies that for whatever reason we haven't talked about on this podcast. Um, and that three maybe possibly I liked. So my number five, I'm going to go with, uh, a movie. Should I say how much the movie made? Cause that, that, that feels if you want yes. for Britain. Yes, do it. Okay. Uh, well, hold on. I need to find it uh, real fast. Okay. It's a movie from 2014. Um, it is the fault in our stars, a movie that made domestically $124 million. So woohoo. Congratulations. You made a lot of money. Uh, got a lot of butts and seats. Um, I really liked this movie. I mean, I didn't love it. I don't know. It made a lot of money. I'm glad it made money. I thought, I think, you know, uh, Shailene Woodley is really good in it. You know, Ansel Elgort, they got like this cute relationship. You know, they're both dying. It's like a cute teen movie. It wasn't a sequel. It wasn't a franchise. It had some good writing. Laura Dern's in it. Okay, great. Made made a lot of money. Good job. (laughs) Yes. Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Uh, all right, Todd, you're next. All right, so my top 25 eliminated what would have been a pretty cool top 25, which were, or top five, which have been The Wolf of Wall Street, Skyfall, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Get Out, and Toy Story 3. So that left me with my number five, which is, I think, a great movie that nobody else really thinks so, other than, I guess I got nominated for one Oscar, that's Ralph Breaks the Internet, which made $201 million at the box office, which I think is actually way better than the original I think the the race scenes are way better, and I think it ups the ante emotionally. The characters are more uh, invested, and uh, you really like the new characters a whole lot. John C. Riley and Sarah Silverman are awesome. And I don't think it had any right to be as good as it was. It was like almost borderline top 10 for me in 2018, and I don't think anybody had it as one of their top five animated movies other than apparently the Oscars, but... I, I thought Ralph Breaks the Internet was an awesome movie, and that that makes my top five. All right, all right. Um, I haven't seen any either of the Ralph movies. I need to watch them. Like my son has watched them, and I haven't watched them. Those are total Terry movies too. I know they are. I need to watch them. Okay, number five on on my list. I I tried to keep it. I, I know I put like the hundred million dollar threshold on it, but I tried to keep it to films that kind of felt like blockbusters a little bit too, um, not just kind of like your critically acclaimed movies that hey it made over it made the threshold so I can talk about it, um, and so mine are all I think pretty much summer releases because that's kind of where the blockbuster kind of feels like I mean. It, to, to have that feeling of being blockbuster, it almost feels like it needs to be a, either a summer release or a Christmas release. Anyways, so my first film, it comes from 2018. It uh, grossed $188 million domestically, and that is A Quiet Place. Uh, this was probably the biggest surprise of 2018 for me. Um, 
and uh, I, I think it's it's telling that it already has a sequel that was supposed to already be out by now. But um, but yeah, A Quiet Place. It's it was a it was a great movie. Who knew John Krasinski could put uh, something together like that? Uh, I loved it. It's a it yeah. I, I I'm not a big fan of like like scary horror thriller type types like that, but this movie was awesome. So, and, and it was a huge hit at the box office, so I'm going with it. Number five, Quiet Place. That's a good one. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, number four was a movie that made $161 million domestically. Did not make as much money abroad, which is somewhat unusual for movies. Uh, but uh, that usually indicates that there's some kind of cultural attribute to the movie that can't translate for international audiences, and that's probably true with this movie. And that is 2015's Straight Out of Compton, a movie that was really entertaining, really fun to watch, um, especially if you're a huge fan of NWA like I am. That was meant to be a joke. But uh, I did really like this movie, though. It was very in in informative. It was really uh, interesting to see the backstory of Ice Cube and Dr. Dre and Eazy-E. Um, I did see this movie was with another white guy who claimed to know more about uh, NWA than I did, and he said that the Easy E death scenes were not realistic in this movie. So I will give I will give that a grain of salt. But I did think this movie was really well done, and the white people that got an Oscar nomination for it, whatever, this movie should have gotten more Oscar nominations. This was a big crowd pleaser when it came out, and uh, it wasn't a sequel or franchise, and we haven't talked about it. So yay, straight out of Compton, awesome movie. I think both of you liked it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, I will say it did pop up on uh, on Jeopardy recently. Um, there was a question, but the question it was great. It popped up on Jeopardy, and the question was: Paul Giamatti played a band manager for NWA in what movie? So even mm. there, it's talking about yeah. He's played a band manager in like what four movies in the last five years? So. <laughs> or 10 years. <laughs> yeah. All right, Todd, number four. My number four made $425 million to the box office. I always thought that it was the best in the series, and that is The Hunger Games Catching Fire from 2014. I think it is uh, less of a ripoff of Battle Royale than the original. I think the performances are more believable. Woody Harrelson actually gets to fight, which is pretty awesome. And I, I think it's better... A better movie than the series probably deserved to have, and uh, I, I think it enhances the material. And I, I, I just think it's an awesome movie. It's, uh, I mean, I like Hunger Games, but uh, Catching Fire is the apex of that series. And uh, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm glad it made 425 million dollars and got zero Oscar nominations. I don't know if I agree with you on that, but you know, that's <laughs> fine. It, it, it was like Rocky 2. And the movies after it were Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and got more and more unwatchable. But it was still a good movie. Just not as good as the original. I like Rocky 4. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, you and I have a lot of problems on this episode. You know, I think we're just we're not seeing eye to eye on a lot. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, number four on my list is from 2017. It made $107 million at the box office. And that is Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Uh, th this movie, I mean, just a blast. I mean, if, if talking about a popcorn movie that delivers on all fronts, that's that's Baby Driver. I mean, it, one of the more entertaining movies 
I mean, you could say of the decade. Um, just, just great. And and no, he was not slow. So number four, Baby Driver. The devil behind the wheel. Devil behind the wheel. What? What was he slow? <laughs> yeah, I I rewatched Baby Driver not too long ago, and I do like the movie overall. But it has such a good first ten minutes that the rest of the movie can't live up to it, and and that is a problem. When when you when you start that good, you can't maintain it. It's it's a it's an issue, but it does have a great first ten minutes. It's true, it does. It's basically it's... the same ten minutes of Drive, and I mean. I, I don't know. I think they both kind of, I, I think they both, like maintain that throughout. But yeah, all right. Okay, Zach, number three. Okay, uh, my number three is an an animated film that I don't believe we've ever talked about on this podcast. I recently rewatched at least part of it because of my subscription to Disney Plus, and we are in the coronavirus, so there's absolutely nothing on. So you do have to watch, you know, every you have to watch movies like this, and that is 2016's Zootopia, made 341 million dollars at the box office. It seems like actually probably should have made more money, um, and it did overseas, where it made twice that much, almost exactly twice that much, 682 million dollars. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, I rewatching this movie. Um, I. Uh, uh, I, I liked it a lot. It's 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 very funny. Um, it has some really great like little animal characters, like details, almost like eerily similar to BoJack Horseman in some ways, although a much more family friendly version. The the sloths are the best part of the movie at the DMV. Although I do love the hamster cage and hamster land where they're running through the the tubes. Uh, it's very funny. Also has some things to say about police brutality and race. Who knew? Go Disney. Um, anyway, I, I like this movie. Uh, it worth the is is it worth the three hundred forty eight million dollars it made? And you know the probably three hundred forty eight other movies that couldn't get made because of it. Maybe not, but you know it's st still a fun movie. At the end of the day, Jason Bateman. <laughs> yep, I love that movie. It's a good one. Good call. All right, Todd. My number three made $620 million, and that is, of course, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which is easily the best movie in the franchise since 1980, and it did what, uh, it did for the franchise I what uh, Skyfall did for the Bond series. It had such an impact that it pissed off a whole bunch of fans, it was, like, cherished by a whole bunch of fans. They had to completely abandon the every plot line from it, yeah, going into the terrible, terrible last movie in the franchise. It just makes this movie that much better. Ryan Johnson plays around with all the logic, all the storylines, and does exactly what you want as a true fan of the series would, not a stupid fanboy. And I wish he had directed the final chapter because it would have been epic, but Star Wars Last Jedi is as good as blockbusters get, I feel like. Yeah, I felt like putting that one on my list, but I, it, it just missed. It just missed. Um, but if, if a Star Wars movie was going to make the list, it was going to be that one for sure. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know so, Adam feels differently. I, I know he does. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I hate how Rise of Skywalker just completely canceled out everything Last Jedi did. Just horrible. Okay. Uh, next on my list, uh, I mean, you have to think about some franchises like Todd did in thinking about blockbusters, but I tried to keep it to one movie per franchise. Um, and number three on my list is representing, like, the largest franchise of the last decade, and it was really hard to figure out which one I was going to go with. 
So I decided to go with a movie that made $623 million at the box office. It's 2012's The Avengers. The original Avengers. Which I think still might be my favorite one. I mean, Endgame is pretty amazing and pretty powerful and does some no, incredible not. things. But the, the first Avengers on. movie is just so much fun and so cool. And the first time they all team up like this, um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's what made, for me, it's what made the MCU as fun as it's been over the last, what, 12 years now? So, uh, yeah, number three, The Avengers. I cannot remember a single thing that happened in that movie. I can't remember Maybe a single they're... thing that happened. Oh, no. <sighs> I would have Dude. chosen Winter Soldier if you were choosing one of those movies. Shwarma. Shwarma, guys. Shwarma. Is that a word? <laughs> Is that a word? Oh. That, that's, that's sad. Okay. Zach, number two. All right, number two, uh, ironically, already mentioned on this podcast. Now we're actually getting to movies that I actually like and, and really like, I guess I should say. Um, it's a movie I mentioned earlier. It is from 2017. It's a movie that came out in February. No one thought it was going to be anything, and then it turned into the best original screenplay winner. That film, made for only $4.5 million, was Get Out, a movie that grossed uh, $176 million. So what is that? Uh, if I can do the math on that, it's, what, what, it's, like, it's like 40 times uh, its, its production budget. That's pretty impressive. Um, it's an awesome movie. It's maybe the greatest February movie of all time. Uh, it does everything that you want a movie to. And uh, hey, you know what? The TSA wins at the end of the movie. They're the good guys for once. That is a nice change in movies. <laughs> Yeah, if I could choose it, that would have been on my list. Absolutely. Talk about an underrepresented part of the population. The TSA, man. <laughs> gotta get yeah. gotta get some representation there. They handle shit. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. Alright. Todd, number two. My number two was on Terry's list. That is Baby Driver. Made $108 million. It barely qualifies, but it's just too awesome, I feel like, to, to pass up. I just watched it again last week, actually. It wasn't necessarily a cultural phenomenon, but it probably should have been. It had all the tools to be that. Like, the soundtrack is killer. It, it like, dictates the, every scene. And I, I feel like the action, it, while it's, like, quick and violent and kinetic, it's, it's just expertly choreographed. I, and I love that it's the last time we're going to see Kevin Spacey probably in a movie. And he's, like, the Dean Keaton of that group. And he's just at his... Like, most, like, almost half villainous, half just, like, expert. He's, he's awesome. I, I, I love him in this movie. And it's probably the coolest action movie of the last, like, 25 years. Uh, Baby Driver. That is my number two. I like that pick. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I'm glad you do. <laughs> Alright, number two on my list is, uh, is an animated movie. Zachary mentioned an animated movie, and I'm mentioning one here. Uh, this movie made $257 million at the box office. It's from 2014, possibly the most creative uh, animated movie of the last decade, and that's the Lego movie. Uh, this movie, when it came out, was uh, it was another one of those that really shocked me and surprised me at how good it was. And like I said, just how creative it was to make this entire movie in a Lego universe like this. 
and and to play with play with the fact that it is uh, it, it it is Legos that that are doing all this and and some of the vo- vocal work that they had in this was just amazing. The spin-offs are nowhere near as good that they've had. Lego Batman was kind of trash, but um, the Lego Movie was it's the original. It's amazing. I love it. It had to be on my list. So yeah, number two. I like it, and I don't like any of the sequels, like the Ninjago movie and the Lego Movie Two, and and Lego Batman. They're all bad. Like they're all I, like legitimately bad movies. But Lego, Lego Batman's movie the is only awesome. one I've seen. Actually, Lego Batman's the only one I've seen. Um, yeah, Lego Movie Two. I'm kind of scared to watch because yeah, of how much I love the first one. Yeah. All right, Zach, number one. All right, uh, I'm going to break my own rules for number one. It is part of a movie franchise, but uh, it's a movie that uh, I was drunk watching earlier this week and texting Todd while I was watching it. And when I was first watching it, I, I texted him, how do people like this movie? I'm in a, I'm in a punchy mood. I want to break this movie apart. And then as I was watching it, I was like, damn, I can't really think of anything bad about this movie. It's actually a great movie that was completely deserving of all of its praise. Did it deserve to be a number in the top ten of the decade like a lot of critics had? Probably not, but it is a great movie. And that is Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. Made $154 million. Um, you know what? Frankly, uh, that's worth it when you consider this movie was like, what, 500 hours of footage and the editor had to, Margaret Sixel had to spend like three months watching all the footage. Just watching the extra features on the Blu-ray for Mad Max Free Road is an experience in itself. Um, it, it's a movie that, you know, uses very little CGI and they went to Namibia and they spent like, you know, longer than, the, the shoot was like a longer than a Kubrick shoot, okay? I mean, they did crazy stuff that, out there in the desert with these cars flying around and stuff and it just is a reminder that cgi sucks okay go back to the olden days we don't need the cgi crap we need people jumping from cars to cars we need someone actually playing a guitar that launches flames out of it we need more max fury roads out there is a great movie clearly the best blockbuster of this decade I will never understand everyone's love of that movie. Maybe I went I into that it thinking it. I was. I, I went into the movie thinking that too because I will say the first ten minutes are very conventional. It's like, oh, okay, great. We see Max. He's getting tortured and whatever. But then, like, once the chase actually starts, it is so phenomenal, and it, it recaptured that magic that you felt watching it in a movie theater. Yeah, Adam gave it four stars. You and Todd gave it three and a half. I gave it two. I, I yeah. do not understand Zach's the like, love of this movie. I don't movie. know why critics love this movie. I would give it two stars if it didn't get 99% and then like on Rotten Tomatoes and then like 10 minutes later he's like, I take it back. This movie's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I was like, okay, Zach. Uh, We're deep diving that shit. <laughs> yeah, I need to rewatch that movie. I really do. <laughs> all right, Todd, number one. All right, taking away all of my ones that are on my top 25 of the decade, there was only one that I could choose. It's, it's, I mean, it, it, honestly, it could be my number one of 2018, and that is Halloween, the David Gordon Green movie. It made $159 million at the box office. It was an absolute monster at the box office. It's the, uh, it's the highest opening ever for a movie with a lead over 55. It is the biggest horror opening ever with a female lead. It is the highest grossing live-action movie ever with three female leads, and it somehow is David Gordon Green's best movie, and even though it's like a horror reboot, like, sequel kind of thing, it, it, like, 
says, like, screw all the supernatural shit that they did in the sequels of Halloween. We're just going to make this a sequel to the first one. And it is an awesome movie. It is a treasure. And I actually think I should put it number one of 2018. Uh, yeah, Halloween, it's it's an amazing movie. And screw the IMDb voter. It's like six point something on there. Screw that. It's it's my number one blockbuster of the 2010s. I have not seen any of the Halloween movies. Well, two of them are worth watching. Okay. All right. Number one on my list. Uh, it's another franchise movie, but it it's it's possibly it, it's such a departure. I don't know if you can really call it that. Uh, this movie is from 2017. It uh, it made 226 million dollars at the box office. Uh, and it saw an iconic character on screen for the last time, and that is Logan. Um, I mean, this movie was just outstanding. Uh, I loved, I love the X-Men franchise, and this is such a departure from everything else that it had, that the franchise had done up to that point. Um, it is by far... Hugh Jackman's best turn as as Wolverine, um, and and really allowed him to do some amazing stuff. Um, it, it's it's amazing. It's it's my number one on this list. And I will say, I didn't keep track of what I had to exclude, but there were a lot off my top twenty five I had to exclude. But anyways, this this is my number one. Um, honestly, I don't think Joker gets made if it wasn't for Logan. Uh, because I think Logan made it cool to have a a dark kind of spinoff movie of a of a popular comic book character, um, and uh, yeah, it it's it's just it's just good. It's dark. It's gritty. It it's emotional. It's no it's number one. That is my number one hundred fifteen of twenty seventeen. Dude, it, it's I think it's in my top ten of that year. It better be at least. Anyways, Zach, did you like Logan? Yes, I agree with you more. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I'm much more toward your opinion this time, Terry. I think it is a really, really good movie. Clearly, the best X Men movie. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it was my number four of 2017. But you know, all it's it, it's like a, a great X Men movie in the way that Magic Mike XXL was a great sequel in the sense that it was kind of I liked it because it was a little goofy. Like I just want to be on that car ride with Logan and Professor X and the little girl. Like that to me was just a great concept, and I wish the movie had been like just just you know that road trip. All right, Zach, you got some honorable mentions. Okay, well, uh, I did on uh, I did honorable mentions a little different. I did um, because I was really upset about this power rankings because we wasted a power rankings on this. I did power rankings that this is like. So this power <laughs> rankings was like a power rankings of the best SEC teams that have won a championship. It was like the power rankings of your favorite people from high school who were on homecoming court. It was like a power rankings of favorite car models made by Toyota. It was like a power rankings of your favorite time the Seahawks lost in Green Bay this decade. Yeah. It was like the top. It was like a power rankings of Todd's favorite Emil Hirsch performances because there's no nothing bad. It's like a power rankings of Terry's favorite band of brothers moments. 
It's like a power um, rankings of Adam's top almost sideways podcast episodes because he's our only listener. And it's also <laughs> like a power rankings of things to do that are exciting on a trip to Pittsburgh. That that is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I was not a fan of this power rankings. Never do this to me again. Uh, well, you better win this one. I kind of picked it because I knew Zach was going to hate it. Is that bad? Well, you you, you know me well. It, it, Congratulations. I mean, it, it inspired wow. you to put together that list, so that was worth it yeah. right there. All right, Todd, what are your honorable mentions? Uh, so I had Gravity, Toy Story 4, Django Unchained, and the one that I... It's hard... It's, it's easy to forget that it was a huge box deficit, and that's Black Swan. Yeah, Black Swan was on my top 25, so I couldn't pick that. So was something else you just said. Gravity was on my my top 25. There were a lot of things on my top 25 I couldn't pick. Inception was my number one. I couldn't pick that. Inside Out would have been on my list, but I couldn't pick that. Uh, let's see here. I think Shutter Island made over $100 million. I couldn't pick that. The Martian, Gone Girl... Um, Silver Lang's playbook. There was a bunch of stuff. Um, but my honorable mention, I didn't want to talk about it again because it seems to pop up on almost every one of my uh, power rankings list, and that's Deadpool, so I left that off. Um, possibly the most rewatchable, because I have to rewatch it over and over again with my kids, is Sing. Uh, it's just a great animated movie. Also, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse I thought about putting on the list, but I didn't. Um, I was a huge fan of Split, and that was a big box office hit. I never saw Glass. I'm, it's another one where I'm kind of afraid to watch it after hearing some of the reviews. And then the last one, possibly the most critically acclaimed uh, blockbuster of the last decade, Dunkirk, uh, was another one. Ended up on my honorable mention. I forget how good that movie is sometimes. Okay. Time for our game. And that is, can we guess Adam Daly's list? Zach, what is your top five? All right, my top five is number five, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, number four, Captain America Winter Soldier, number three, Deadpool, number two, Inside Out, and number one, Avengers Endgame. Emotional experience. I'm pretty sure Inside Out was on his top 25, but I don't know. Was it? Well, I guess we'll um, find out. Let me look. I have it right here. It do was. I, it was number 25. Do I, do I get a redo? You're yeah, sure. I I'll one. give you a redo. Okay. Arrival. Okay. I don't think that made $100 million. I think I looked it up. Because, you know, you, to do this list right, you had to do like 10 Now you don't steps. even know yeah. if you looked it up or not? <laughs> yes, I did look it up. It did pass $100 million. Okay. Barely. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, for Adam, I have number five, Straight Outta Compton. Number four, Django Unchained. Number three, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Number two, Gravity. And number one... Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but I feel like I might have picked the wrong Planet of the Apes. Okay. Uh, I've got number five, Dunkirk. Number four, Deathly Hallows Part 2. Uh, number three, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Number two, Logan. Number one, The Force Awakens. Okay. All right. Here's what here's Adam's list. Couldn't use Get Out, Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant, or Inside Out. Uh, honorable mentions, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, crap, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, damn it, <laughs> John Wick Chapter 3, Edge of Tomorrow, Gravity, 
and La La Land. Number five, Inception. Have to put the first big blockbuster of the decade on the list. Watched this twice in theaters and loved every minute of it. Fantastic score and a truly good time at the theater. Why wasn't that in your top 25 then, Adam? All right. Number four is Halloween, the second best Halloween film. Uh, Loved how they changed a a lot of the lore in previous films. It was great to see Mike Myers on the big screen again. Uh, number three, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, the best MCU yes. film. I love the way they made a political spy thriller in the MCU, Hail Hydra. Did you have that on your list? Yeah, yeah. my number four. Dang it, he's going to win. That's the best MCU movie by far. At least he has no. it on there. Number two, Straight Outta Compton. Yeah, I got one. Made my top 10 of 2015. <laughs> one of my favorite biopics of all time. Super enjoyable film. Jason Mitchell was fantastic as Easy e And number one, Skyfall. <sighs> By far one of the best Bond films. Amazing cinematography and stunt work. Love the theme song from Adele 2. Alright, so, I had straight out of Compton number five. And Zach had Winter Soldier number four. Well, it right. depends on where you put his newly entered one in there. No, I, I put that in number two. I've exchanged that out with Inside Out. Okay. So you won by one? Like you had... Well, and, I mean, and... He, well, you both had an overlap of... Like, Todd had Halloween on his list, but Zach had Straight out of Compton on his list. That doesn't count, though. We're predicting Adam's list. I know. I'm just saying tiebreakers here. But I, th- Wait, yeah, so I think you, still... where'd you have where did you have Winter Soldier? Fourth. And he had it third. And he had it right? third. Oh, so you're closer. Because I had Seattle Compton five and he had it what two? Yeah. Yeah, so Zach so I, I win. Zach's closer, yeah. Excuse Zach me. wins. Hey, Zach pulls out a point. So Todd, what's our uh, what's our score here? It is now eighteen and a half for me, twelve for Zach, and thirteen and a half for Terry. All right, so that means Zach gets to uh, get his revenge on picking a. Oh, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have fun with this. <laughs> picking a, a category for our next uh, our next power rankings in a couple weeks. Let's go French movies of the last two years. <laughs> More like French movies of the 1920s. I oh, like there that. we go. That, yeah, there we go. Or drunks right. of the 1940s. We, we were talking about that one time. <laughs> Not not played by Thomas Mitchell is that would that be a stipulation there? <laughs> or yeah, yeah, or Walter <laughs> Brennan, or Walter Houston. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, it's time to move into our trivia segment. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And first on our trivia segment, we have to report on some movies we watched. Um, who was doing the assigning this, this week? Was it Todd? Yeah. Todd was doing the assigning. So, uh, Zach, what did you have to watch and what did you think? I had to watch The Art of Self-Defense, which was on Todd's top 10 of 2019. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, okay. I watched it, uh, last week or I guess the week before last. So I got to think about it for a second. Um, 
It stars Jesse Eisenberg as this guy named Casey, who is very, he's a victim of a crime in this movie. He's also very timid. And so after he's a victim of a crime, he goes to this karate school um, with this uh, karate instructor played by Alessandro Nivola, who, by the way, I think is one of the most underused actors in Hollywood. I love any time I see Alessandro Nivola in a movie, and he is really good in this movie. He's actually the best part of this movie. Um, I described this movie to Todd. What did I say? I said it was like a, a mixture of um, Fight Club. Uh, what else did I compare it to? Do you remember what I said? I was really proud I of the person I made. I only remember Fight Club, yeah. Well, yeah, there's some parallels with Fight Club. Oh, I said it's also a little like um, a little like that crazy movie with uh, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, oh, sorry uh, to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Yeah, because it kind of, you think it's going one way. You, th- you think it's basically about, you know, this guy kind of taking, a, becoming really good at karate and his relationship with his sensei. And then it goes like this completely different direction that's really dark and kind of twisted. And um, that's kind of where the movie lost me a little bit. I felt like it had, a, I really liked the sort of um, realism of the first half. Uh, I thought the situation was really realistic. And I liked the kind of subtle but unmistakable tension between the two main characters. When the movie went off into this kind of escapist territory that was just like, I thought overwrought and frankly, um, just uh, unrealistic. Um, that's when it kind of lost me. So, kind of the same, I guess, to an extent with Sorry to Bother You. Um, so again, thumbs up for the first half, thumbs down for the second half that is like a two and a half star movie yeah sounds about right but you know i like the idea of a serious sincere movie made about a guy who wants to be good at karate i wish the movie had just stayed on that on that level instead of going crazy but whatever okay all right i have not seen the utter self-defense um, but Todd assigned me instead. He allowed me to uh, continue working through the Terminator franchise, so I got to watch Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, it, and this one, looking at it, everyone kind of kind of says this is better than the original, which is impressive because the original is so awesome. And I'm going to echo that. Uh, this is a, an amazing movie and definitely one-ups the game of the original movie. Um I, you only had to wait what seven years for the for the sequel to come out, which is impressive considering we're now on what year twelve since uh, since Avatar and we're still waiting for Avatar two even though it was announced like immediately afterwards. Yep. Anyways, um, a couple things that stood out in this movie: the transformation of Sarah Connor from just kind of this like valley girl to this ripped just savage was pretty impressive. Uh, Linda Hamilton did a, must have done a lot of work to get this to get to that. Um, Edward Furlong as John Connor kind of puts together the blueprint of every kid performance of the last twenty five years. Uh, Easy money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was saying he kind of reminded me of Anakin Skywalker and Phantom Menace at times too. <laughs> like okay, I think I think sure. everyone kind of looks at must look at john connor in in terminator 2 as as what they want a child performance to be robert patrick is menacing in this movie um and i i could never figure out he reminded me of somebody and i could never figure out who it was um i i don't know it's just it's just a fun movie one thing i will say um how in the world do they have like an entire giant like freighter truck of liquid nitrogen just cruising down the highway. I mean, there's no way that actually happens, right? 
I guess. I don't know. Anyways, it, it, it the, I'm really falling falling in love with this franchise. It's a four star movie. I think it might even now be my number one of ninety one over Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I got to put some thought into that, but uh, yeah, really, really good stuff here. Uh, I'm looking forward. I'm going to be watching. And it was beloved by the week. Oscars. That thing won like four or five Oscars. Like uh, yeah, it, it won four Oscars. Yeah, it's, I mean that never happens with those big budget especially sequels <laughs> i mean oh that, you know like born ultimatum didn't happen with that or uh that was only that was know, three for, they, like, like terminator 2 was like what that, that one four and it was nominated for like seven or eight i mean yeah was, it won sound sound editing visual effects and makeup and was also nominated for cinematography and and editing that's impressive yeah i mean yeah i mean born ultimatum is pretty impressive too but i mean that 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 rarely ever happens. I think I think Terminator Two is one of the best movies that's ever been made. So <laughs> I'm glad that Terry loves the franchise. <laughs> I, well, and and it's it's one of those that as I'm watching it, it it was kind of like it's kind of similar to I compared to like the first time I watched Die Hard and like oh I can see how this kind of invented a John a genre of film. Um, and they're very similar genres, but very different p- parts of it. You know. Like Terminator yeah. and Die Hard are very different sides of a very of a similar genre. So, it's also uh, the best time travel movie that's ever been made too, which would be a cool power rankings at some point. Well, and it's funny because I I knew I knew Arnold Schwarzenegger was like the good guy in this, like that was spoiled. But watching him, like man, if you didn't know that sitting in the theater, this first like half hour, forty minutes of this movie is really intense. As you see these two guys, and all of a sudden it flips its head the first time they encounter John. Um, yeah. So, uh, Todd, you pick movies, which means you're hosting trivia. What are we doing? What are we talking about? All right, we have a few categories. None of them are related to each other, so this will be kind of fun. This will be entertaining for me, at least. Uh, so, <laughs> my, first, my first category is... The top ten at the box office from March 13th through 15th, from which is the last weekend that theaters were open. So you got to look back about you know two months and think about what the top ten at the box office were before we couldn't watch any more movies in the theaters, which I thought was sort of relevant, I guess. So there's ten point, possible points in here, and we will go with Zach first. Uh, Harley Quinn. That is not on the list. What? <laughs> that did not make the top ten. That was, I think, too early. That was like mid-February, so it was already off the off by March 13th to 15th. Lame. Terry, you have anything? <laughs> Onward. Onward was number one. Uh, how about the movie we reviewed, The Way Back? The Way Back was number seven. Emma. Emma was number nine. Um, oh, what came out with Onward? There was something else that came out with it. Yeah, the only other thing I had written down was Birds of Prey. Um, what about the... What? Oh, I was gonna... Go ahead, I'm done. The, rhythm, the rhythm section. That that is not on there. I don't yeah, know that was if that actually early. got released. Oh okay. Okay, the other ones you guys missed were Bloodshot, I Still Believe, The Invisible Man, The Hunt, 
Sonic the Hedgehog, Call of the Wild, and Bad Boys for Life, which is by far the highest grossing movie of 2020. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we have three to nothing, Terry, and we will go into our second category, which is completely unrelated and completely random, which is the Golden Globe <laughs> Best Picture Comedy Musical nominees from 2015 to 2019. So we have 25 movies, and I know we all watch the Golden Globes, so <laughs> I guess we'll start with Terry. <laughs> um... <laughs> And it's not going to be easy. This would be a category I love that you would pick when I was actually competing. So Okay. Um, gosh. Rocket Man. Rocket Man was nominated in 2019. Uh, 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 Freddie Mercury movie. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That is... That was nominated in the drama category. So oh my is, god! Can I have a mulligan? Just give me a mulligan, please. <laughs> okay. I have a really good one. Okay. Just okay. Our, the Martian. The Martian was nominated. Yes. Thank you. That that Terry is literally what I just wrote down was the Martian. <laughs> um. Okay. So so wait. So you're telling me that that Rocket Man is a musical, but but that but, is uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Pathetic judgment of the Golden Globes. Yes. What well, Judy was was considered a drama too, also, right? And I feel like that's a guess, but yes, you're right that. No, it was I, a drama. I knew I knew that I knew that was right because because Renee Zellweger won Best Actress Drama. Um, I'm gonna go Booksmart. Booksmart is not correct. Ah, okay, I get a mulligan because he got one. Yes. No, because Zach misunderstood the category, sort of. No, he didn't. He just mi- he just he just screwed okay, up. Okay, fine, That's what whatever. Okay, you no, guys can get going because there are twenty four other movies that you can name. Yeah, so. yeah. Right. We're we're right. well twenty three. We're just now, I beginning. Guess. Just beginning yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, the, this. Oh crap. Um. Uh, 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 oh 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 oh. Um um. Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> that is correct. That was not yes. in, in 2018. Uh, La La Land? La La Land won in 2016. Oh, that would have been a good one to go with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah the, the Martian equal. was the winner also, by the way. So Zach is actually <laughs> technically ahead of Terry in this category. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what won last year? I'm never going to come up with that. Um, Trainwreck. Trainwreck was nominated in 2015. Okay. Uh, the Big Sick? The Big Sick is incorrect. <laughs> How did The Big Sick not How get nominated? How was that not nominated? Gosh. Well, I mean, that was a pretty loaded category that you're actually... Uh, okay. Can I get can I get another mulligan? <laughs> I could go three strikes in this category since there's so many options if you want. Oh, oh, sure, like why it. not? Okay. Make it interesting. So so does he get a go again or do yeah, I go yeah, now? Yeah, Zach, Zach oh. goes again now. Oh, okay, I go again because I had another one um, and that was Lady Bird. Lady Bird won in 2017. Now you have the top, you have the three winners from 2015, <laughs> 16, 17. <laughs> <laughs> Um, dude, uh, 
I'm I'm just losing steam here. Um. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? That was the winner in 2019. Okay. It's now 7-3. to three. Zach, is, Zach is up now. Uh, okay. Uh, girls Trip? <laughs> that is incorrect. So Zach is officially out of this category. <laughs> um... Uh, Jojo Rabbit? Jojo Rabbit is correct. Um, I, I think I'm done. I'm going to say I'm done. Okay. Well, you guys missed a the 2018 winner of this category and Best Picture at the Oscars, which is Green Book. <laughs> you guys... That's a comedy. Also Comically missed bad. the likes of The Big Short, Joy, Spy... 20th Century Women, Terry's favorite movie, Deadpool, Deadpool. Uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, and Sing Street, The Disaster Artist, Sing Get Street. Out, The Greatest Showman. Oh, yes, Get Out is a comedy. The Greatest Showman, I, Tonya, Crazy Rich Asians, The Favorite, Vice, Dolomite is My Name, and Knives Out. Not a I great show. Nowhere, for you guys. I was nowhere in the headspace to be able to do that category. Okay, <laughs> because the, the favorite is also a comedy. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's eight to three. Terry is up, and we are going into one that I hope Zach can actually catch up in, because we now no longer have sound mixing and sound editing categories at the Oscars. We only have one category. So, from two thousand to two thousand nineteen, I want every no every winner of the sound editing and sound mixing categories. And if they won both, then you get two points. Okay. So Who starts? Zach, Zach goes first. Whiplash. Whiplash is correct. That one something. Hold on. Yeah, that one sound mixing, so that's one point. Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari won sound editing. Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road won both, so Zach gets two points. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody won both, so Terry gets two points. Uh, Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. That one sound mixing. Oh wait, we're doing we're doing all the way back to two thousand. Yeah. Oh, I misheard that. Okay, so two thousand to two thousand nineteen. Yes, that's what Got I it. said. I thought. Okay, I, yeah, I didn't. I, I I wasn't. I must not have been listening that closely then. Okay, well that changes my thought process now. Okay, um. Yeah, there are 31 possible movies you could name. Holy cow. Okay. Um, Dunkirk. Dunkirk won both. So two points. The Bourne Ultimatum. 
The Born Ultimatum won both. Wow. Oh, 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 1917. 1917 won Sound Mixing. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring? No, sorry, Black Hawk Down. I changed my mind. Black Hawk Down. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, Black Hawk Down won Sound Mixing. Fellowship of the Ring did not win. That's up. Anything. Uh, yes, I'm glad I made that change. <laughs> um... Inception? Inception won both. We currently have 16 to 10. Terry is up. Gosh, this is so hard because it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not the movies you can't think of. It's which movies? Um, uh, Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker won both. Wow. The Aviator. The Aviator uh, is incorrect. What? Wow. So, I thought it won all the text that year. Zach is four points behind, and he has... The decks are open for him to take, take this. Okay, um, Slumdog Millionaire? Slumdog Millionaire won sound mixing. That's one point. Okay, Gladiator? Gladiator won sound mixing. And I forget that. <sighs> okay. That one, nah. There's one I really want to go with, but I'm afraid to go with it. Um... Why not? United 93? I thought that won that year. That's not correct. Ah, okay. I, I'm pretty sure it was only nominated for two Oscars. Well, I'm stupid. Well, Terry won 16 to 14. The ones that we're missing, uh, sound editing winners, we had U571, Pearl Harbor, The Two Towers, The Incredibles, uh, Master King and Kong. Commander, we didn't say either, right? Oh, yeah, Master and Commander, King Kong, Letters from Iwo Jima, the Dark Knight, uh, Inception, Hugo, Skyfall, and Zero Dark Thirty Tide. American oh, Sniper. Yeah. Remember that. Gravity. The... Arrival. Yeah, Gravity. That was the one I was mad at. Uh, then you also missed Chicago for sound mixing. Ray, Dream Girls, Les Miserables, Hacksaw Ridge. So, there were ones I guess you could have gotten, but, I mean, if you pay attention, I, I don't know. I, I predict all these categories, so I kind of pay attention to all of them. But, but Terry, I guess, gets to pick movies for what, you know, us to watch at his discretion. I, I, I definitely sucked less. We'll put it that way. Yeah, the ca comedy musical category did not go as planned. <laughs> but, you know. I did better than he did. <laughs> well, and you know, I shouldn't have gotten all those mulligans. Ter Terry is the deserving winner. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap this thing up with our quote of the day. Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack with a little sex in it. Quote of the day. And uh, since I won, I get to go first. My quote. Uh, 
is uh it's a paraphrased quote it's one of the things i thought of as i was watching uh as i was watching joe um and this is a paraphrased quote from uh the the wonderful film knocked up and uh as i was thinking of uh as i was thinking of peter boyle's performance in joe what i what i thought of was uh like i said paraphrased quote from knocked up joe is like an unfunny version of everybody loves raymond so that's <laughs> so that's, that, this that's is, we quote. were actually talking about this like 40 year version has to be a that has to be a, a deep dive coming up right terry Mm-hmm. definitely so, that definitely has to be that's a good call okay yeah yeah all right uh todd we'll go to you next uh, mine comes from Baby Driver. It is a it is an exchange between Baby and JD, which I honestly feel like could be an exchange between Badger and Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad. He says, uh, "Baby says your hat your your tattoo says hat," and he says, "Yeah, it used to say hate, but to increase my chance of employment, I had the E removed." And he says, "How's that working for you?" He says, "Who doesn't love hats?" <laughs> um, good point. That that totally does sound like Badger. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love hats? <laughs> All right, Zach, you get the last word. All right, mine comes from uh, uh, the movie Bull Durham because it has Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon in it, and we d- <laughs> talked about them on today's podcast. And it's when the character of Crash says, "Well, I believe in the soul, the cum, the pum, the smell of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing astroturf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, softcore pornography, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days." That would have been a great quote at Whitney Houston's eulogy, but. (laughs) And with that, we'll bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Again, subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. You can also find us on Spotify. Uh, We'll be back at you next week with another deep dive of an anniversary movie. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.